And in the light of what Peyton said, buckle up, buttercup. Is that what this is? Buckle up, buttercup. Good to see you today. You know, you could be out on the lake or you could be, you know, but that's afterwards, right? Y'all are, y'all, why are y'all so slow for? Has it been a long week this week? Yeah. Um, listen, an announcement that we didn't make up there, but I'll make it to you guys. If you have been visiting with us for a short amount of time or maybe longer, but you'd like to know more about Heritage, we'll have Connect next, uh, next Sunday right after this service. We'll feed you. We'll take care of you. We'll just tell you a little bit more about the in-depth of Heritage and who we are and where we're headed. And if you'd like to sign up for that, there's a limited number of spots. Uh, if there are spots available, you can sign up by typing the word connect um, and sending that to our text line at 352-358-7770. We'd love to have you. And uh, in addition to that, um, there's just a lot of stuff going on in there around the world today. If you turn on the news, it'll surely captivate you and, and uh, turn the tube off, people. Turn the tube off. Spend your time reading God's Word and listening to what Jesus has to say instead of what the best reporter has to say what's going on around the world. But I will say this. You do need to be mindful and in prayer for those around that are walking through this difficult time. Uh, I have been communicating back and forth with, with a, uh, uh, a gentleman in Moldova. If you know anything about that area, Moldova sits to the southwest of Ukraine. And in that corner, there are a lot of refugees that are fleeing into, into Moldova. And this gentleman has been, um, he and his church have been there on the, on the border trying to meet the refugees as they come in. And there are some specific needs that they have. And, and so we just need to be in prayer, mindful of what's going on. And if there's an opportunity for us to be able to be involved in that, we'll be letting you know of how we can, we can minister and work with the church that's there on the ground um, I'm thankful to have a church that cares not only about what goes on here, but what goes on around the world and the privilege we have of being an influence. Isn't that right? Amen? Y'all want to be really quiet today? Should I talk really quiet? Y'all are like you're asleep today. How many of you are test takers? Why are y'all laughing about? Y'all like, I'm going to give you a test or something today. I'm not much of a test taker. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of that crammer. How many, you, we got some crammers around here? I, I didn't really know what cramming was until I went to college years and years and years ago, okay? And I thought to myself, I'm going to cram one night. I didn't do it. I, I'm just going to cram. I, I don't know why I did that. It was the dumbest thing I think I've ever done in my life. So I went to this place where they serve coffee in uh, pancakes, maybe you can figure out which one that was, and it was open all night back then. I don't know if it's still open because I'm not, I'm not up at that time these days. Um, so I went to this place with some people we were going to call what they cram, and, and so I don't know how many pots of coffee later, but I, I needless to say, when I got home that morning at 4 or 5 o'clock, I did not go to sleep. I don't think I went to sleep the next night the next night, or the next night, <laughs> somebody could drop something and I remember going, you know, it was just, I guess I learned what caffeine was that night that I crammed. It was a bad, I just never did that again. But here we are in the middle of Romans and in this place that we find ourselves, 
we, there's a series of questions that we're going to see Paul asking starting on verse 31 where we left off. And we're like at this place. It's almost like a midterm exam. And Paul's going to hit, hit us with all these questions and some, and some answers to make some points, to focus on some points that Paul has been making up until this, this time. And Paul's going to use a, a literary form that's called a diatribe, and it's a method where there's questions that are asked, and sometimes maybe an answer is given, but they're given to make a point. And here it is, Paul is wanting the listener or the reader to, 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 to listen very closely and clarify, clarify some important truths that he's been speaking about up until this point. To make my point, I'll, I'll go back, let's go back to chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, but I think in your notes, maybe we've listed these. In chapter 3, Paul asked the question this, listen, if we're all guilty, then what is the advantage of being Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? There in chapter 3 and verse 9, a little bit later, he's asked the question, well then, should we conclude that Jews are better than others? He followed by the answering that question, no. A little bit later in verse 27, he asked the question in chapter 3, can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? Paul again answered the question, no, because our acquittal is not based on anything by obeying the law. It's based on faith. In chapter 4, he would ask another question. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right, right with God? Followed by the answer, if his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scripture tells us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteousness because of his what? Faith, not works. And then in chapter 6, we see the familiar question there in, in chapter 6, verse 1. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in sin? And now we, here we are in chapter 8, in the middle of Paul's letter, and there's almost like this bombardment of questions, and some of them followed by answers, but mostly questions. And this is what Paul had to say there in chapter 8, verses 31 and following. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but he gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. And then in verse 34, who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. So here in this passage that we're going to see today, it's almost like a, a crescendo to the top. It's almost like the finale at the fireworks show. And he's going to use these questions to make some points. And what I want to do today is I'd like for us to be able to look at these five questions. Can I do that? And your response is, yes. see, now, now there you go. There, there's where you are. Nathan, you're going to have to lead the charge this morning. Everybody else is asleep. You're this type A personality, you can get them going. So if you feel like they're sleeping, if you'll just stand up and go, hey, you guys paying attention? Will you do that for me this morning, Nathan? You got it. Okay, we're in, all right, we're good to go today. Listen, before we read the word we, and we talk about his word, can we pray this morning? Father, I'm just thankful that we have a body of believers, that we have the privilege 
of not only singing about you, bringing praise to you through song. Father, we have the privilege of witnessing uh, the, the baptism of a young girl who says, I want to follow Jesus. What a privilege that is. Now as we read your word, I pray that it wouldn't be my voice, that my intellect that would be the teacher in this room, but the Holy Spirit would be the one that opens up our hearts and our minds and our spirits and our time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Look at the first question with me there in, in verse 31. And so Paul writes, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? And we could say this is a question of reaction or a question of response. It makes me think about, I wonder what in the world Paul is referring to when he talks about these things. What are these things, these wonderful things that Paul is asking the question about? Well, Maybe he's talking about referring to everything that he's written up until this point in the previous eight chapters. Maybe he's talking about the, the wonderful things about the wrath of God, the fact that all of us are sinners and all of us deserve God's wrath and judgment. Maybe he's talking about the grace of God for the fact that, that God demonstrated his love that while we were still in sin that Christ loved us and he made things right through his son Jesus Christ. He could be talking about that or maybe he's just talking about um, the truths in, in chapter 8 alone, the truths like there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, or that we've been adopted after we come to trust Christ into the family of God, or that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within our hearts and transforms us. Maybe he's talking about the Holy Spirit giving us power to live a new life, or the fact that we've been promised a new future and a, and a future glory. The hope of glory, that we don't have to worry about these sufferings of the world that we experience that get, have a way of bogging us down. Or, or maybe he's thirdly talking about just the little paragraph before when he talked about that all things work together for the good that love him and are called according to his purpose. That he foreknew, that he predestined us, that he called us, that he justified us, and that one day he will glorify us. But regardless of, of what he's talking about, if it's the last paragraph or if it's all of everything up until this point, what Paul is asking is a big deal because what he's asking is this, are you in agreement with the spiritual truth? How do you respond to the spiritual truths that have been, that have been presented to you up until this point in time? Do you reject them or do you ex enthusiastically accept them and respond to them? Or just are you indifferent to the truths that have been taught? J.I. Packer would write in Knowing God, he wrote, and I quote, whenever we embark on any line of study in God's book, God's holy book, we need to ask ourselves, what is my ultimate aim? And I want you to listen to this very, very carefully because sometimes our, our pursuit of God's word isn't in reference to holiness, but knowledge itself. So listen to what he says. What is the ultimate aim and object in occupying my mind with these things? What do I intend to do with my knowledge about God once I've gotten it? For if we pursue theological knowledge for its own sake, it's bound to go bad on us. It will make us proud and conceited, for the very greatness of the subject matter will intoxicate us. At one point, when Jesus was speaking and teaching his disciples, he would say to them in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, so pay attention to how you hear. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. But for those who are not listening, even what they think they understand will be taken away from him, from them. When we, when we hear God's word, 
we choose to apply God's word, we will grow in God's word. Did you hear that? When we hear God's word, not only hear it, but when we choose to apply it, we will grow. Spiritual growth is what's really important. Spiritual truths that are unapplied are useless. True? How many people hear God's word but choose not to apply it? In Psalms chapter 27, verse 8, when writing, David would say this, My heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. Um, My heart responds, Lord, I'm coming. I'm coming. He didn't say, wait a minute, listen, can you just hold on just a second? Let me send this email. Sometimes Meredith will say to me, hey, Sid, will you come here? And my response is, can you hold on a second? That's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. Can you hold, let me finish sending this email. Let me finish doing this over here. When mama calls, I need to respond, right? When Jesus speaks, we should be listening. And it's like, Lord, I want to hear. What is it you want to say? I want to hear what you got to say because there's a hunger for your your voice. There's a hunger for your, your word. Do we have the same sense of hunger for God's voice? Do we have that same sense of hunger for the spiritual truth so that we can apply it, not just know about it? The second question that Paul would ask is a question of opposition. Look at the second part there in verse 31. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? I mean, just think about that for a second. God is for us. God is for us. When's the last time you thought the fact that God is for us? Why don't you just say that with me? God is for me. Say that out with me. God is for me. Say it slower. God is for me. He's for me. He's not against me. When's the last time you sat down and just soaked in the fact that the God of the universe who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it is for me? Have you ever met somebody that they felt that God wasn't for them, but he was against them? Maybe you felt that way. I know that I have in my own personal life. There have been times that I've said, why God? But you know, if you felt that way, you're not alone. Not only have I felt that way, but there are people in the scriptures that have felt that way. And we have stories. We have stories inside of the scripture, like the story of of Job in the Old Testament. Here he, after enduring great suffering and pain, at one point in his life, he 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 would say this to God, tell me what I've done wrong. Show me my rebellion and my sin. Why do you turn away from me? Why do you treat me as as your enemy? It would be the prophet Isaiah that would prophesy the fall and the downfall of Israel and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, who would say this, the Lord is like an enemy. He swallowed up Israel. You know, the New York Times did did an article. There was some research that was done on Google search data in reference to Googling about God. And they took what um, people had Googled about God and they put them into a a, a list of of numbered phrases or questions or things that they had searched for. And here are the top three things in reference to God that people Googled for. Number one, one was who created God. Number two was why does God allow suffering? And then the third one was why does God hate me? What that tells us is based on research, there's a significant number of people that believe or think that God hates or dislikes them. And yet Paul says here, he says, if God is for us, who can be 
against us. And the word if leaves some questions, doesn't it? I mean, if means maybe he is, maybe he isn't. But based on the Greek and the translation, we, a, better, a better thought might be this, since, not if. Since, since in light of the truth that God is for us, then who can be against us? You know, one of the things that would be great, and it wouldn't cost you anything, but you could do this, and you could do it every day, and I promise you it would make a difference before you ever got out of the bed, before your feet ever touched the ground, for you to remind yourself and even say out loud, God is for me. He's for us. He's not against you. We were reminded of that in song. Last week we sang the song that says with these words, I'm chosen, I'm not forsaken, I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. God, you're not against me, you're for me. I am who you say. Now look, that, that's a great song to sing. Man, as you're driving down the road, you know, as you're hanging out or whatever, some of you know it might be good to hum the tune instead of sing the tune. We on the same page. God is for us. He's for me. He's not against me. And when I come to the place like little Maddie did, and she, she says, I want to trust Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. God not only saves us, but he adopts us into his family, and he gives us a, and a, not only an identification, but an inheritance that's out of this world. And yet there's so many times we treat God like Santa Claus, He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. But the truth is, God knows. He knows those times that we're naughty. He knows those times that we aren't, don't act the way that we should. And yet he doesn't turn from us, but he turns to us. He loves us in spite of all that foolishness. But when we think about who is it can be against us, the reality is there's a lot of people that are against us, isn't there? I mean, there are a lot of enemies. The devil himself is an enemy. The demons in hell, are, the world is against us. The enemies of God are our enemies as well. And maybe a good way to reword the question, it would be something along this line. If God is for me, who really cares who's against me? It's a big deal. Having confidence that God is for me. And it, 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 there's, there's, this, there's this perseverance that comes about. When, when we have confidence that God is for us, it changes the way we respond to certain circumstances. Talk about David. Here he is surrounded by as many as or more than 10,000 soldiers, and yet he would declare in the Psalms, Oh Lord, I have so many enemies. So many are against me. So many are saying, God will never rescue him. But you, O oh Lord, you are a shield around me. You are my glory, the one who holds my head high. It's the book of Judges that we find the story of Gideon and, and his confidence in God and what it would do. Here he, here he was, he, had, he was down to 300 soldiers, and yet it, God, his confidence in God would enable him to go against the Midianites who had an army that totaled more than 135,000 soldiers. And I think about the story of Daniel and the lion's den and the confidence, the boldness that he would have because of his faith in God. I think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that fiery furnace when they refused to bow down to the king because they knew that God was for him. What does your knowledge of God 
is for you? What does it cause you to do? Where is our boldness and our courage? Which brings us to the third question. The third question of qualification. Look at what Paul writes there in verse 32. Since he did not spare even his own son, but he gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? And this isn't just a logical question. This is a theological question as well. One of the ways that we could divide the book of Romans may be um, the wrath of God, the grace of God, the plan of God, and the will of God. And we find ourselves right here in chapter 8 in the middle of, of the grace of God. And yet in Paul's writings, he consistently goes back and points us back to the cross and to the sacrifice of, of Jesus Christ. And here he references the cross again in 32. Since he did not spare even his own son, but he gave him up for us all. Won't he also give us everything else? And in those moments when we're, when we're tempted to question God's love, those moments that we're tempted to question God's grace, those moments that we're tempted to question that God is for us, man, it's a privilege for us to be able to look back on on God's record and what he's done up until this point. You know, years ago, I don't know how many years I need to withhold from saying years because I might have to, I might tell you just how old Meredith and I are, but years back, I did something really special for Meredith and it was on a birthday, a special birthday. And I had planned this thing out. Sometimes I do things special. I don't always do things, but every, every once in a while, I get her done. And so this is one of those times that I can look back and go, check, Mark, I did it, you know. So it was, it was a birthday of hers, and it was a special birthday. And um, so I had made all these plans. Guys, let me tell you what, plans go a long way. Right, Roth? Planning of things go a long way. Sometimes we do things on the cuff, but let me tell you what, there's some, there's some jits in the box you know, some things that you can accomplish when you, when you plan and you make things happen. So I had spent all this time planning to make this night a special night for Meredith. And so um, I had gotten some roses, and I had went down to, the, to this fancy place that we were going to have, and I went ahead and I said, look, this is what I want to take place. I want this, this, this. Now, listen, guys, it wasn't just one dozen roses. It, was just, it just wasn't two dozen roses. It was three dozen long stem roses, all right? So I want you to be with me. Hang out here with me just for a second. So I said, look, when I get there, I want a dozen roses, Dave. I want a dozen roses on the table. Now I said, look, when the appetizer's brought out, I want you to bring out uh, another dozen roses. And at the end of the night, when the dessert's brought out, I want you to bring another dozen roses. Now, there's a little bit more to the story because Sharon Meredith had lost her diamond and her diamond ring. Oh, yes, I know. So I had gone out and I had bought her another diamond ring. But in addition to that, see, I'm telling y'all, man, I'm giving you guys some ideas. So I had not only bought a diamond ring, but she had wanted a band to go around that diamond ring. So I told him, I said, look, now this is what I'm going to do. If you lose this, I'm coming after you, your business and everything else. Now, it, was, now, it wasn't cubic zirconium, but it wasn't at the top of the list either, okay? But it was worth something. It was valuable. 
So I said, look, in the, in the first dozen of roses, I want there to be, I, you know, I don't need anything in the first dozen roses. Just I'm going to put a note that says, I love you, ha happy birthday, and all that kind of stuff. The second dozen roses, I want you to hide that diamond in those roses. No, they did not lose the diamond, okay? In the third set of roses, I said, I, what I want you to do, the third dozen roses, I want you to put the band in there. So it was like this whole thing all night long. We got there, the roses, everything worked as planned, you know. And at the end of the night, we uh, was getting ready to, to leave, and the, the guy came over, the owner of the place came over, and he whispered into my ear, he said, this has been really fun. <laughs> I, I said, well, man, I'm, I'm, I'm great. I don't want to see the bill, but, but it's, you know. <laughs> But he goes, it's been so fun. There was a couple that was here watching you guys, and they got so enamored and said, this was, this, was the best, this was the best entertainment they've had in a long time, and they've paid for your meal. You hear all, that, you hear all the women go? The women said, aw. I thought to myself, we need to do this again, you know. But there's just sometimes we get these experiences where, you know, the, the, the gift is just so large and it's so huge and it's so valuable. And here it is that God has already given us the best gift, the most that he had, the costliest gift that he could ever give with his son, Jesus. Sure, there's things that we may need, strength, discernment, wisdom, direction, patience. There are a lot of things that we may need and our heavenly father wants to hear those things from us. But as important as those things may be, nothing is compared to the gift, the great gift that God has already given us through his son, Jesus. Amen? Absolutely. And I want you to think about this. If God has already given us his best, don't you think that he'll take care of everything else that we might need? Isn't that an incredible source of confidence and encouragement builder to us? Look at the fourth question. Fourth question, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? It's a question of accusation, which is answered with the answer, no one for God himself has given us a right standing with his self. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had my share of enemies over the years, whether they've been on the ball field or whether they've been in person. Some people have been public with it. Some people have been private with it, thinking that they know my heart and they know my motives behind certain issues. And maybe you've been there. And here's the question, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? And here's that language, one that brings us back to the courtroom. It's a legal language. A better translation might be, who's pressing charges against you? I mean, who's accusing you? What are they charging you for? Who's holding sins against you? And it's the devil himself. He is the one who's the accuser. His very name, Diablos, is a word that means one who slanders and one who defames. In the book of Revelation, he was called the accuser of the brethren, of the brothers and sisters. He's constantly tapping us on the shoulders and reminding us of the past, wanting to do everything he can to distract us and discourage us. It's those voices in your head that say, you're worthless, you're a nobody, nobody cares about you, you're no good. One guy said that before we sin, Satan tempts us, after we sin, he taunts us. It was Job in the Old Testament. His integrity and faithfulness in God was essence put on trial and brought to question. And in response to his obedience and his love for the Lord, Satan the accuser 
basically said something along this line. See, the only reason he loves you is because of all the things that you've done for him. You take those blessings away and he'll curse you. That's what he said. Go back and read it in Job 1.9. It was an accusation. The devil loves to point out all the weaknesses that we have. He loves to point out all the failures that we have. But there's only one problem. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Steve Bales, you're a sinner. John Humphrey, you're a great guy, but you're a sinner. You know, Sean? I mean, think about that. It's true. All the things that here it is, our weaknesses and our failures and our sins, it's true. We're sinners. And if it wasn't for Jesus, where would we be? But in those moments that here Satan wanting to remind us of the past, we have the ability to go back and remind him of what our, our righteous judge, Jesus himself, has already done for us on our behalf, that he has redeemed us and he set us free. Amen? That's amen? amen. A big amen. The accusations. We've been made right with God through Jesus. Man, that's the end of discussion. Doesn't matter what the accuser has to say. We know the truth. John Newton, who would write the song Amazing Grace, early on in his life, he was a slave trader. Maybe you know something about the story, but later on in his life, he would meet Jesus face to face and it would radically change his life. And near the end of his life, he would write these words. You know, my, me my memory fades. I've forgotten a lot of things, but there are two things I, I know. I know, number one, I'm a great sinner. And I know, number two, that Jesus is a great Savior. God's declaration and his promises are bigger than any of Satan's accusations. That's it. End of discussion. What about the fifth and final question? It's a question of condemnation. It's basically the same question that we find in verse 33 with a Christ-centered response. Look at what he says in verse 34. Who then will condemn us? Who will condemn us? No one. And you know why? Look at what he says. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Who is it condemns us? We already know that Satan, he's the accuser. He's the one who loves to condemn. But listen, we don't need any help, do we? We are our own worst enemy. In John, 1 John chapter 3, we read these words. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings. And yet he knows everything. God's chosen us. He's justified us. But as Savior, yes, he's given his life for us. But now he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. To which John Christostrom would write, he was the Archbishop of Constantinople back in 400 years um, after the birth of Jesus. He would say this, if then the Spirit even maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered, and Christ died and intercedeth for us, and the Father spared not his own Son for thee, and it elected thee and justified thee, why be afraid anymore? Why tremble when enjoying such great love and having such great interest taken in thee? See, here's the deal. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for us, and that work has been completed. But Jesus' work on our behalf is not finished. He's still working and interceding on our behalf. 
Sure, the cross and the sacrifice of our sins, but the Bible says that now, where is Jesus? He's in heaven preparing a place for you and I, that where he is one day, we may have the privilege of being also. But in the meantime, he is interceding on our behalf. Have you, have you, ever, have you ever had the time, have you ever had the time where somebody has communicated with you and they maybe just made the statement, um, I'm thinking about you. You ever had somebody just walk up to you and ask you, just, Ashley, I want you to know I'm thinking about you. Or Jacob, man, I want you to know I'm thinking about you. You've been on my mind lately. I want you to know I'm praying for you. You know, Robert, I'm, I'm praying for you. There's something that happens when that, that kind of conversation takes place. It makes, you feel, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel Loved. And here's Paul saying, look, Jesus didn't just die for us, but he's still at work on our behalf. He goes back, and I'll read it for you again there in that verse, in verse 34. For Christ died for us and was raised to life for us, and he's sitting at the place of honor of God's right hand. What's he doing? Pleading for us on our behalf. Before Peter would ever deny Jesus, Jesus warned Peter, listen, Peter, I want you to know a test is coming. Is coming. And we find in, in the book of Luke in chapter 22 in the gospel there in Luke 22, it seems that Peter finds himself in the same exact situation that Job would find himself back when Satan, Satan wanted to put his faith to a test. And in that passage, in that chapter, we find the words, the phrase, sift each of you like wheat. And it was a metaphor, sift like wheat was a metaphor for shaking apart or breaking down, causing so much chaos that you would eventually want to cave or fall. But it wasn't just Peter that Satan was targeting because his eyes were set on all the disciples. But not just the disciples, but us as well, right? See, the devil doesn't want us to succeed. He wants us to fall. And I love what Jesus' response to the impending attack of the accuser was. And here it is, and and, and Jesus is speaking, Peter, I want you to know, and this is what he said, I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. That even though there's going to be a time that you're going to falter, I want you to recognize that I'm here. I want you to repent and I want you to turn to me because, see, what I'm going to do is in your life, I'm going to use you to do some incredible things. I'm going to do some incredible things in your life. And in that moment when you feel like you're being stretched and it's very difficult to hold on to your faith, I want you to, I want you to know that when your faith is being tested that I'm, I'm there. I'm there. I'm not just a answer. I just don't have the answer, but I am the answer. I am the way and that I am the truth and that I am the life. And, and Peter... I'm, listen, I'm fixing to give my life for you, but I want you to know that that's not the ending of the story, that there's so much more, so much more than I'm going to do because I'm for you. I'm still going to be working on your behalf. And man, you talk about some encouraging words for those of us that are on the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection. That even though we celebrate Easter, we have to recognize, man, Jesus is alive, but, he's, but what his work his work that he was going to do is not completed, that he's still working on our behalf. Isn't that great news? Excuse me. Isn't that great news? Yes. 
Because I know you, you're sometimes just like me. Sometimes I get at the place that I get confused or I get discouraged or my confidence is low and I just need to be reminded that, man, listen, God is for me. He's not just done something for me, but he's continually doing something for me. He's interceding, pleading on my behalf. Jesus, we are forever grateful, not only for what you have done and for what you've demonstrated in the past, but what you're going to do in the future. Jesus, what I am so thankful for today, Lord, is not just what you've done, but what you're continuing to do. God, may you bless us. May we continue to look to you for a divine encouragement and strength in these words that we, write, that we read that Paul wrote years and years ago, but yet how applicable they are to us. Help us to hold on to the spiritual truths and not become discouraged in the journey, but to recognize, God, you're there. In Jesus' name.